Good morning. I just want to set the record straight because I was not reciting prose, I was actually reciting poetry. <laughs> there is a difference. And it was Lady of Shalott, so thank you. Uh, hello, I'm Jessie, and I'm one of the leaders here. And as I spent the last kind of week reflecting over me being up here, I realized that Tuesday is actually a pretty big day in, in my own history with Hub City because Tuesday is my son's birthday and it's also the day that on his first birthday, we packed up all of our belongings, we packed up our whole life all the way in Kaiser, Oregon, and we moved down here to Albany to be a part of this little church plant. And <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into at the time, honestly. I had no intention of ever being in ministry. And in fact, it took me about two years um, before I realized that I was in ministry. Somebody asked me a question about being in ministry and I was like, oh, I'm not in ministry. I just run the kids. Oh, ministry. Yeah. So that was, but now it's been seven years. and. It's been a crazy, challenging, lovely seven years, and if I had any amount of skills in planning ahead or thinking in the future, I would really be interested to see what the next seven years are like, but I kind of like living day to day, so welcome. <laughs> Let's pray and get into Mark 14. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are for being here with us, that we don't need to take the time to ask you to be in this place with us because you are here. And I just pray for all of our hearts that we leave this place changed and with a deeper knowledge of who you are. Amen. So we're in Mark 14 today, but I actually I'm going to move us back a little bit to Exodus because we went to Exodus a couple of months ago, and we didn't really spend enough time, in my opinion, in Exodus. And it's my favorite book of the Bible, and I love it. And actually, after reading through Exodus, I kept going and did Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and just kind of kept going, which, let's be honest, most of us conveniently just skim over Leviticus and Numbers often when we read through the Old Testament because it's a little dry. I love narrative and I love story. And so all of the details and all of the laws are a little bit tedious for me to get through. But I stuck with it. And it was amazing to me after sticking with it and reading it and then reading this passage in Mark, I just my whole idea of what this passage was just kind of blew open for me because I had spent so much time reading through all the intentionality that God put in all of those laws and those customs, and it was just amazing to me. So Mark begins with Jesus's baptism, and that's the beginning of his ministry. And then the whole what we've gone through so far in Mark is what that ministry looks like and this kingdom promise of what, he's, what his kingdom is going to look like. And then this moment in Mark 14 is what I see as the culmination of that ministry. 
It's his anointing. And the moment where his ministry here on earth is done and we get to move on to the next beautiful and wonderful steps. So in Exodus, as the people leave Egypt, they're formed into a new nation. God gives them a bunch of guidelines and laws, and he does this to set them apart and to create a culture for his people that will look different than the cultures around them. And some of these are a lot of these specific customs are preceded by an anointing. Uh, there's when someone becomes a priest or a king, they anoint the temple and they also anoint sacrifices. And these practices are set into Jewish law and were directly given from God to Moses, who then gave it to his people. They serve, like I said, as this specific culture and setting to make God's people set apart and create their own culture as they made this new nation. But as we'll see today, they're also set this foundation as pointing from the very beginning, all of these customs and laws are pointing to the big M Messiah in Jesus that will eventually come. We'll see that Jesus is the new and better priest He's the new and better king, he's the new and better temple, and he is the new and better and ultimate sacrifice. So in case you're unfamiliar with the term anointing, Webster defines it as to consecrate or make sacred in a ceremony that includes the token applying of oil. Basically, pouring oil on something that then makes it sacred or holy. Also, something to keep in mind is that Messiah literally just means anointed one. Jesus is the promise and the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament and all the traditions that God had set aside for his people that they spent hundreds of years practicing are all meant to point to this big M Messiah, this capital M anointed one. It's this moment in Mark 14 of Jesus being anointed as that capital M Messiah that we'll look at today. So back to Exodus. We see God's people being saved from a life of slavery in Egypt, brought through the desert and being set up and set apart as a nation redeemed. God gives them rules and structures and customs and an identity as his people. And this serves to remind them of who they are and where they came from, but also who got them there. Because God parted the Red Sea. They didn't part the Red Sea. They didn't free themselves from slavery. God did every part of that. And so part of this structure involves God setting up leaders in the community to help the people in their remembering. In Exodus 28 through 30, we see Aaron and his sons being set up by God as the first priests. There's this whole tradition and they need to be cleaned through both with their physical and their spiritual and their sacrifices and they need special clothes. And there's this whole ritual to make them clean before they can meet with God and become priests. Interesting um, two things. The Bible Project just conveniently did a five minute video this week about this. So check that out. It's pretty, pretty great. And to keep in mind that while God is on Mount Sinai with Moses, telling them, telling Moses 
to anoint these priests, Aaron and his sons, at this exact moment, Aaron is down on the ground with God's people, helping them pool together all of the gold that God had gifted them with on their way out of Egypt. And he's there melting it all down and creating this golden calf for God's people to worship while God is on the mountain telling Moses, this is your first priest. This is the person, and these are the people responsible for leading this whole nation into remembering me. So just right off the bat, they failed miserably. So Exodus 29.7, one of the things it says is it... God instructs Moses to take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And that's what God is telling Moses to do, to anoint Aaron as a priest. This priest's job was to act as a mediator between God and the people, and they act as teachers, leaders, and judges. They were responsible for maintaining the temple and the customs dictated by God. You can read through Exodus and Leviticus, I understand it's a little dry, but it's also amazing to see just how big the scope of this is. And you're welcome. I, my geeking out on this was pretty minimal for you today. So hundreds of priests later, Jesus comes and he's constantly fighting with the religious leaders because they miss the point. Jesus comes and he shows us that the priest was supposed to care more about the hearts of the people than they were about all of the traditions and the laws and the customs. Jesus shows us that the traditions were there to help us remember what God had done, not to be so caught up in the doing that you miss being with Jesus. They got so bogged down with the doing of the things and the control of trying to do all of the things that they missed the heart of what God wanted. They were trying to earn their salvation, and that was not ever the plan. Hebrews 4.14 tells us, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus came to fulfill the ultimate role of priest, to mediate between God and his people, to teach, to judge, to lead his people in remembering who God is. One who hears our weaknesses and our desperation and understands our temptation and heartbreak and enters into that with us. He touches the unclean instead of casting them out, and he heals what is broken. This moment in Mark 14, verse 3, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. This is Jesus being anointed as the holy priest. So we have the priest. We also have the temple or the tabernacle. This was a place where God's people would come to meet and encounter God. This is where God dwelled. 
It was a sacred and holy place. Again, if you read through Numbers and Leviticus, it gives very, very detailed instructions on what this temple is supposed to look like, which for me, who is not a detail-oriented person, I get really overwhelmed by just all of the measurements because I've never measured anything in my life. But I was struck with how intentional that is, how important it is for God to have his space look a certain way and have his people be obedient in that. And there were rules for who and how somebody could enter into that temple. They needed to be clean, both physically and spiritually, and they had the same rituals of bathing and sacrificing. In Leviticus 8.10, it describes the anointing of the temple based on God's instructions to Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. So when the people were in the desert, they had the temple and it was a movable tent that they took everywhere with them. And then eventually they were in a standard permanent place that they built a temple that was then destroyed. So they rebuilt it and it was destroyed again. And here at Jesus' time, if you listen to Randall's sermon last week, he talks a little bit more about the temple and what the temple looked like right then. But ultimately, every temple that was built was not permanent and it failed because it was never meant to be the place where God permanently dwelt. It was always, like the priest, it was always set up to be a place to remind and point to the ultimate temple. Because then Jesus comes and he says, he is the temple living with us all the time. In John 1, it says, the words became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the temple that can't be permanently destroyed, that you don't have to go to a particular place to encounter. The temple that you don't have to be Jewish to enter, you don't have to be clean to enter, and you don't have to look or act a certain way to enter. It's accessible to all of us. It's the new and better and eternal temple. So when Jesus is being anointed here at Bethany in verse three, he is also being anointed as the final temple. So we have Jesus as the priest and the temple, but he is also the king, the final king. If you've read much of the Old Testament, you'll be familiar with the story of God's people looking around at all the other nations and kind of throwing a little bit of a hissy fit because everyone else had a king and they just had a bunch of religious guys leading them and they felt left out. And God tried to convince them for a while, you don't need a king, you don't need a king, but finally he obliged. So in 1 Samuel, we see Samuel, who is a prophet and a priest, anointing the first king of Israel, Saul. He is a man chosen by God, and we see in 1 Samuel 10, verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be the prince over his people Israel? 
You shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Like Aaron and his sons and that holy priesthood, it doesn't take very long before Saul fails miserably. And in fact, he kills himself, and then David is appointed king. And David, who, if you know nothing else about Jewish hierarchy and kings, you probably have heard of him. He is the most beloved, and it's from David's line that Jesus came. And even him, who wrote most of Psalm, is an adulterer and a murderer. And his genealogy breaks down pretty quickly with the kings and failing pretty miserably pretty fast. So even this set-aside appointed kingship are made up of men who fail miserably over and over and over again. But lucky for us, God knew that they would fail, and that's why it was never his plan forever. He remembers them through all of their forgetting and continues to send prophets to remind God's people of who he is and that there is a better king who is coming. This from Isaiah 9-6 is a promise of such a king. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. This passage is a promise of a good king who will not fail, who will bring peace and justice and righteousness forever. When Jesus is anointed at Bethany, he is anointed as the new and better and eternal king. All of Mark has been a study in the promise of what that kingdom will look like and what kind of king Jesus is. We see Jesus healing the unclean, the Gentiles, the rich, and the poor in Mark 5. He is powerful enough to care for our physical needs by feeding 5,000 people in Mark 6, as well as constantly caring for our spiritual ones. Demons obeyed him in Mark 5. Wind and waves are under his command in Mark 4. This kingdom that he brings is one of peace and rest, of being filled, and where the expectation is just for us to show up and accept the gifts that he's offering. Jesus the king is not fighting for borders or conquering nations. He's subverting all the expectations of what those kings look like. He is the most powerful and important king, and what he does is bring peace. So God set up this whole system for his people that unfolded over history. 
They have a temple to worship. They have priests to remind them of who God is and what he's doing for them. They have a king eventually, and then he fails so miserably they don't have that king anymore. And all of these fail miserably so often because they rely on their own power. Then we see Jesus come in and change the expectations of all of those roles. He comes to show us that all these traditions were God's plans from the very beginning to point to the better, ultimate fulfillment of all these things in Jesus. But Jesus wasn't just an important priest or a powerful king or a costly temple. He was also the sacrifice. Let's read the first part of Mark 14 again. 14, 1 through 3. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So Passover is an extremely important day in Jewish history. It is the day that God's people remembered how they freed him, freed them from a life of slavery in Egypt. And from the very beginning, before they're even freed, God tells them, set this day apart. This is how I want you to remember what I've done. They would, in this passage in Exodus, before they're freed, they're instructed to kill a spotless lamb and paint the blood over their doorframe. And then the angel of death would pass over them and anybody who had that blood over their doorframe would not lose their firstborn child. So this is a pretty big thing that they would remember every single year. This theme of a sacrificial lamb taking on the punishment of a person or a community is introduced even before Exodus with Abraham. When Abraham makes a covenant with God and he puts up his son uh, Isaac for a sacrifice and God provides a lamb instead of Isaac. This sacrificial lamb makes an other appearances and becomes an important part of most of the religious practices. The blood of the sacrificed animal was set up very early in the scriptures as a cleansing act to make a person ready to meet with God. The first five chapters in Leviticus goes through a lot of details about sacrificing and specifically the idea of an atoning sacrifice. And then John the Baptist asserts Jesus as the final atoning sacrifice in John 1.29, when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here we are in Mark. It's almost Passover, a very important tradition in, in God's people's history, one where these religious leaders are presumably or should be pretty busy getting everything ready for this Passover feast. They should be preparing their hearts and the people's hearts, as well as just whatever details are involved in getting a Passover celebration ready. And what are they sitting here doing? They are plotting to kill a man. 
So even if this isn't Jesus, even if this isn't like the capital M Messiah and this is just an ordinary man, this would be a little disturbing, right? Like I'm thinking about we're getting ready for park day and Randall and Matt are back here like, who shall we kill today? Like this is disturbing. And they're so wrapped up, this shows us that they're so wrapped up in their warped protection of the law that they're completely missing the point, not just of the coming Messiah, but of the whole Passover celebration. And they're even willing to wait. They know it's wrong to kill a man on Passover, so they're willing to wait a couple of days to like let the effect of it die down a little bit. And why, why do they even care? Why do they want to kill Jesus so much? Because he's constantly subverting and questioning and changing the way and their expectations of their tightly grasped version of their law. We saw a few examples of this in Mark of Jesus coming head to head with the religious leaders. In chapter 12, they ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. And in chapter seven, they confront Jesus about the Sabbath. And he's constantly giving them answers that make them a little wrong and show that they're missing the point. So in this Passover moment, we see the priests failing at pointing the people to God. And we see the new and better priest who is still being anointed. But who's he being anointed by? A woman. Not a chief priest, like is traditional, but a woman. A woman who, in this culture, had very little personal worth and would have had very few possessions of her own. And we see her here with Jesus, with a bottle of perfume, which likely was a bottle of perfume that was passed down. It was her inheritance passed down from generation to generation. It tells us it was almost worth almost a year's worth of wages. This would have been her safety net, her like emergency savings account. And we see her literally dumping her entire nest egg on Jesus's head. And this is so unexpected that even Jesus's disciples take a minute to complain about this. In verse four, it says, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. I think it's John that says it was Judas who said that because he kept track of all of the money, and so he was bothered by that, but there was complaining happening. So we here see this lowly woman anointing Jesus while the chief priests are plotting to assassinate him. And where are they? They are not in a temple, which is normally where this sort of anointing would happen, but they are in the home of a leper. Mark 1.40 is one of Jesus's first miracles, and one of his first miracles is healing a leper. This man, who, because of his uncleanliness, had been left out of community and was therefore without worth or support, 
comes and finds Jesus, and in his desperation, he says, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus made him clean and sent him back into community. And so now we see Jesus at the end of his ministry, and he is again in the home, or he is again with a leper. But this time, this leper has a name, he has a home, and he has enough of a community that there are people eating with him. Jesus shows his value of this man by cleaning him and giving him these things, healing him completely. So just take a minute to let this picture soak in and understand the magnitude of this moment. This king, who was born in a stable and not in a castle, this temple, who was manifested in the body of a man, this priest is being atoned by a lonely and the anointed, anointed by the lowly in the home of the unclean. He is capable of calming storms and healing the sick. And here he is. And what is the first thing he does? Mark 14, 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This passage is a throwback to the lamb who was slain at Passover, but it's also a throwback to Exodus and God's original plan for the priests from the very beginning. In Exodus 29, 31, after Aaron and his sons are anointed, they are told to eat the toning sacrifice whose blood made them clean. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. So when Jesus tells us to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he is echoing the traditions of what a priest would have done to the atoning sacrifice. He is putting himself forward as that sacrifice, the sacrifice that makes us clean. So here we see Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, the healer of pain, the multiplier of bread, the calmer of storms. And what is the first thing he does when he is anointed as the chief priest and the king? He lets himself be broken. He humbles himself enough to be the sacrifice. And through this, he becomes the new and better way that includes all of us. No longer do we need to follow all those cleansing rituals and all the sacrificing. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
through him, not through anything we can do, not through any check marks we can click off or affiliations we have or sports, whatever. It's through Jesus. The Pharisees missed this because they were too caught up in doing all the things and missed the being with Jesus. And the being is good. Later in 14, John 14, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus is a little bit of a ball hog. He's the king over all, but he's also the servant who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's the per perfect, spotless lamb that was slain, but he's also the good shepherd that leads us to tranquil waters and in green pastures. He's the temple and the high priest, but he's also the worshiper that exemplifies praying and surrendering to the Father. He does all the work. He carries the whole load. And that was always the plan. We, all of us, from the beginning of time, have failed over and over and over again. We failed each other, we failed God, we failed ourselves. But God knew that, always. And so his plan was fail-proof. It was Jesus. The only way for that plan to work is by creating a foolproof, fail-proof plan. So where does that leave us now? Jesus promises over and over that when we reach the end of ourselves, we will always find him. This woman who anointed Jesus emptied out her safety net. Jairus' daughter was dying, and he came to Jesus. The woman who was bleeding for 12 years, the leper, all these people came to Jesus in their most desperate moments. They said to him, I can't do it. I've run out of my own abilities. Help. And every single time, Jesus turns to them and says, I will make you clean. The Pharisees couldn't see Jesus, not because they were evil, but because they were unwilling to believe that there was a different way. Take a minute and look at your own life. What are you white-knuckling control of? Where are your anxieties that you refuse to release and surrender? What is ruling your life? What safety net do you literally just need to pour at Jesus' feet? That act of surrender is not an easy one, but it is good. One of my favorite promises is found in Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. 
but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Today, we get to respond to this promise in a couple of different ways. You can worship, pray, give, and receive. We get to come to these tables and receive the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. We get to recognize the great rescue plan that Jesus set forth at the very, very beginning and fulfilled in the death and resurrection and the will be fully realized when he comes back. But as you eat that bread and drink that juice, you're doing it in remembrance of the creator, but not just of the blood that was spilled and the body that was broken, but as a reminder of the enormity of that promise. Not just eternal salvation when you die, but to carry your burdens now to walk through this broken life with you now, to renew your strength, to walk with you so you are not weary or faint. And all you have to do is let him. Recently, I have found a lot of beauty in liturgical prayers and reading things written by people who are far more eloquent and wise than I am. So I'm going to close us today with a prayer written by Dmitry of Rostov, who is a 17th century Russian opera writer and also a bishop. Come my light and illumine my darkness. Come my life and revive me from death. Come my physician and heal my wounds. Come, flame of divine love, and burn up the thorns of my sins, kindling my heart with the flame of thy love. Come, my king, sit upon the throne of my heart and reign there, for thou alone art my king and my lord. Amen.